Well, how's everybody doing? <laughs> Surviving the semester? <laughs> Papers are coming your way, professors. You know, it's just another time. But I hope that things are going well and that you're uh, getting through this time. And it's, it's great to be gathered together for this Advent service. Um, so thanks be to God. When my uh, nephew was uh, very, very small, like all of us growing up, one of the great delights of our family was to get together and carve the pumpkins. And in our family, uh, actually after I got married to dear Julie, uh, we, her father was a big pumpkin grower. So he would grow all the pumpkins for the family and uh, we would carve them up. So our nephew, when he was probably maybe five or six years old, he decided that he wanted to be a part of the process of planting the pumpkin. So he got the little pumpkin seed in his hand, and we took him down to the garden, and Joey's dad made a little place for him, and he put the pumpkin seed in the ground. This is like Friday afternoon around 3 o'clock. Covered it up, he watered it, and then he comes back home up to the house. Little did we know the next morning, at Saturday morning, before we realized it, he slipped out of the house. He went down to the garden to get his pumpkin. And we had that experience of having to break the news to him that he had to wait. It was going to be a long wait before he could finally harvest his pumpkin. This is the time of the year we talk about waiting and expectation. And from the earliest age, we begin to learn about things that we have to wait for. And there's many things in life that we wait for, we expect and anticipate. And certainly as the people of God, we live in a world where we expect things and wait for things. But you know, in Advent, we often, there's actually two kinds of ways we talk about waiting in Advent. And the first one is the one we mostly talk about. And today I want to talk about the second one. But the first wait is what I call the recreated wait. In other words, we're already on this side of the incarnation, but we try to recapture what it was like to wait for the first coming of Christ in the world, that first advent. We, in a sense, we try to put ourselves in Isaiah's shoes. And we have a lot of ways we talk about it, and we try, and this is actually a great healthy exercise for the church, of course, to do this. This is part of our rhythm of the church year, to stop and say, what was it like before the word of God stepped into the world and fleshed in Jesus Christ? What was the world like before the incarnation? or we're visited by the, the amazing work of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And we, we remember that, and the church recaptures that waiting. But in some ways, it's a waiting that we, we already know. It's like, you know, you're, you're remembering something, you're trying to capture something, but we're, we're already on this side of the incarnation. So it's a recreated wait. But the other advent, of course, is the one that we still await, the great blessed hope of the church, when Jesus Christ returns. And we are in this wait, this long, in fact, in, in some ways, it's so much longer than the early church could have imagined. This wait that we're still in, we don't know when Christ will return, but we do know that Christ will once again step into the world. This is the active wait that we're in. And this is also part of the Advent season that I want to mention today. And we, we actually read the, two of these texts side by side today. The one, the familiar, you might say more Christmas text of the Incarnation, but also the second Advent text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
That text, as you know, in Thessalonians comes at a time when the church was wondering, well, maybe there was a rumor that broke out. I know you thought rumors just started in our century, right? First century rumors. Jesus has already come back. It's already happened. It happened over there somewhere. No, 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 it happened over there somewhere. And Paul is writing to say, no, 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 it's not that way. This is not like the first advent. And so in some ways, the first, the first and second advent are a lot alike. We have the, the, the eternal Son of God stepping into human history. We have the enfleshed one coming to dwell among us. The, the, the second coming is the, is the, is the, the theantropic man. It's the God-man. There's no, when, when the John says that the word became flesh, there's no compromise in that, is there? This is something that God did. And so Christ will come back and he'll be in flesh. We'll see him. But there are so many ways in which it's different. The first advent he comes in, in humility and weakness. The second he comes with, with power and glory and might. The first he comes in quietness. He he enters into a womb. He enters into a stable. The whole thing is done quietly, in secret, as it were. It's, it's a, no one notices it. The second comes in trumpets and legions of angels and clouds in heaven and the climax of the ages. The first advent he comes as the Lamb of God to, as a sacrifice to the world. The second advent is the Lion of Judah to, to judge the world as we heard so graphically in our text. The first one, no one witnesses birth, but Mary and Joseph and a few animals. But here, the second advent, we're told, every eye will see him. So there's some really big differences in the first and second advent of Christ. And the first one, of course, we know so well. And I don't want to say a lot about it, but I want to emphasize maybe a few parts of the story. The first advent we don't, I think, emphasize enough. The first is the early identification of Christ in the incarnation with the very broken aspects of our world. First, homelessness. Think about it. The whole thing begins with Mary and Joseph entering into a world, a, a, a space of homelessness. Think about it. Christ's first identification is, is being homeless, displaced from his home in a borrowed cave. By the way, I hate to break it to you, it was probably a cave, not a little nice wooden hut that you saw on the front steps of your church. Okay, well, but it's homelessness. Christ is born into a context of homelessness. Then you have the identification with refugees. They, they, because of Herod's wrath, of course, by this time Christ is probably two or three years old, Herod unleashes his wrath, this horrible, you know, the, the innocent, massacre of the innocents, and they have to flee the country so now here is Christ, his earliest memories are that of being a refugee as they flee to Egypt. So that's not a great story. Here's the Christ, I mean, obviously at his baptism, he identifies with all sinners uh, in his baptism. But early on, we see Christ's identification with homelessness, Christ's identification with refugees. And then the amazing thing is the flight to Egypt itself. Now, many of you, of course, have traveled around the world, and we have internationals around the world, and I've noticed that uh, when I was in Ethiopia, for example, the Ethiopians would say to me, hey, we're in the Bible. You know, this is great, you know. I mean, it's like a vote of pride, you know. In Americans, we can't say, oh, yeah, you know, we're in the Bible. We're not in the Bible, okay? <laughs> we're not in the Bible, okay? Ethiopians say, yeah, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, and all the old Ethiopians everywhere. We're in the Bible. They 
love that. Indians say that thing. Oh, we're in the Bible. India is twice in the book of Esther. You know, often will tell, hey, do you know the India is in the Bible? They love that. But I've never heard an Egyptian say to me, hey, we're in the Bible. <laughs> it's actually a really important point. Why would Ethiopian say, hey, this is awesome, Ethiopian eunuch, you know, it's us. And Egyptian, like, we never mention it. Because Egypt is identified with oppression. Egypt is identified with hardness of heart and with essentially being the, the strong arm against the people of God. So think about it if you're an Egyptian or Egyptian Christian. How do you think about yourself as an Egyptian? All right, it's a really important structural point about what it means to... I know when I was at Maxie Dunham, we were down at... The, we were on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. We were at the Lorraine Hotel and uh, there for the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday. And, and he said to me, you know, if you live in Memphis... You know, just living in Memphis, you can never fully, you know, you know how to get away from the fact that it, it, our city, MLK Jr. was shot to death. And it, you, what, what, you can't change it. It happened in your city. So here's Egyptians. Like, this happened. Our country did this. We oppressed the people of God. We enslaved them for 400 years. So what does God do? God sends the Messiah to Egypt for protection. Egypt becomes the very nation that protects the Messiah. Egypt becomes the nation that, that keeps, prevents the Messiah from being killed. I mean, would the, would the mess of salvation unfold if not for Egypt? So it shows that early, even in the early days of the incarnation, there's all kinds of theology rolling out about who God is, about the homeless, about the refugees, about even God remembering what it's like to be an Egyptian. And praise God for the Egyptian church who can now say, we were the refuge for the Messiah. When, when he was under threat of death, they fled to Egypt. And yes, of course, it's also true. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. And Christ recapitulates the exodus from Egypt. All of that's true, but it's also true that God remembers Egypt in the time of the, of the, of the, of the, of the, the uh, incarnation. Okay, moving over to Thessalonians, uh, this is a time where Christians are under suffering and persecution. And I think Paul implies at least that this is a, because he extends it out to Christ's second coming, that this is what it's going to be like. Christians are, to, are going to be expecting to be persecuted and marginalized. It's going to be difficult for us. This is a post-Christendom world, remembering what a pre-Christendom world would be like. And so Paul reminds us of this. And so essentially, he lays out two groups of people. Those who, enduring, or who are enduring with faith, who with perseverance and with suffering endure to the end till Christ comes back. And those who do not know God, those who persecute the people of God, and who do not obey the gospel. So this is a very stark laying out of the two ways. Now we all know, of course, that the whole Bible is framed around the two ways. Remember the Psalms has the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. It's the framework of the entire book of Psalms, the, the hymn book of the church. That, that was the, the core of their entire worship was around catechizing around that great truth. Proverbs, the, the way of the, the foolish and the way of the, of the wise. Or in the Pentateuch, you know, the, those, who, those who obey and those who disobey. Those who are the way of life and way of death. 
So here Paul is saying that this, this, these paths will someday come to an end. Remember, Jesus himself said about these ways, he said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the path, wide is the gate, and broad the path that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. And narrow is the gate, small is the gate, and narrow the path that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now, so Jesus is reminding us of the two ways. This is part of his own ministry. Now, these two paths that travel through the world and the world we're in too will someday come to an end. And this is the day that those two paths reach their end, the day when Jesus Christ comes back in glory and power. Now, Paul, when he, when he used this language, I mean, you can't help it when uh, Megan read this story or read this account, you have to be struck by the, like, the vividness of the language this is really stark language, though how Paul describes his return, the blazing fires, the, 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 uh, the, the, the powerful angels, the, the, the judgment, the majesty. All of this language comes right out of Isaiah chapter 66. And Paul, you know, it takes me, it took me years to kind of finally realize, and I always heard people say this, but that the, um, you know, that the Old Testament is the only Bible that they had, right, in the, New, in the early church. But it really is true. Their Bible was the Old Testament. So it's actually really helpful to go back and remember what, how Isaiah 66, this is the end of the prophecy of Isaiah, what he says. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. It goes on to say that he will come and gather all nations and all tongues. They'll come and see his glory. And it goes on finally to say he makes a new heavens and a new earth that will endure before him. Now it's amazing this, this power of the gospel to be unfolded in the end of time where Christ fulfills all these expectations. He's going to come and set things right. Now, there's at least three things that happen when Christ returns. I think it's worth uh, noting at this point. First of all, Christ overturns death. Now, death, of course, we're told in Corinthians, the last enemy to be put under his feet is death. Now, when I was in your position, I was in seminary. I graduated and took my first uh, position as a church. I was on a four-point circuit. And I'll never forget the night that I received the call from the district superintendent. And uh, they, he said to me that uh, you're being, you know, I'm going to tell you where you're being sent. And this is one of the you know, great joys of Methodist ministries. You tell people, tell the bishop, you know, I will go wherever you sent me. And they actually believe you. You know, <laughs> they actually do it. And so I'm sitting there, you know, on my phone, and I'm writing down, and he, and he says to me, you're being sent to the Nakuchi Methodist Church. I wrote that down. Okay, Nakuchi, I want to tell my wife we're going to Nakuchi. But then he kept going. <laughs> Chattahoochee Methodist Church, Louds Methodist Church, Mount Pleasant Methodist Church. Okay, so we were sent to four churches, all right? Now, I thought, wow, I don't even know if I can pastor one. <laughs> I have four. So these four were scattered, you know, around an area, like you might imagine, in, in that northern part of Georgia. And what I wasn't expecting, which began to come right away, were funerals. And I'm, I have to be honest with you, I, I've really racked my brain. I honestly believe I had never even been to a funeral. 
in my ministry, in my life. I had never been to a funeral. And so I suddenly, my first two years, I had 52 funerals. 52 funerals. That's like one every other week. So, uh, in fact, at one point, a lady said to me, this is like my, maybe my you know, 25th or 30th funeral, she said to me after church one day, I'm not sure if she was trying to encourage me or discourage me, but she said to me, there's two kinds of preachers in the world. There's marrying preachers and there's burying preachers. And I believe that you're obviously a burying preacher. That was really helpful. But I did tell my superintendent at one point, and we had had a net gain that year of one member. I said, but you have to realize we had a lot to overcome to get into the positive territory, all right? But I, I remember at night times receiving calls. I remember one that Julie remember well that we got on, on New Year's Eve. This would have been 1984, December 31st, going into uh, 1985. Phone rang. It was these words, ex- these are exact words I heard on the phone that night from a woman named Hetty Ledford. I love those names of those people in that church. And her husband was Buford. And she said to me, Preacher, they, they, I never heard my name, by the way, mentioned in my six years there. Preacher, um, Buford is commencing to die. Okay, that was what she said. Buford is commencing to die. And what that meant, now this is, there's, in those days there was no 911. No one picked the phone and called 911. If someone was dying, you called the pastor. That's what people did. We got in our car. We drove over there. We held hands with Buford. We sang Amazing Grace, and he died. That was one night of 52 funerals in two years. And what's so amazing about that experience for me was that I, and and all the ones like it, is that I was brought into what many of you will experience as well, the amazing privilege and awesome responsibility of walking with somebody in the context of death, their own death, as people linger in ICU units. And I used to go around when I would visit ICU, I'd, well, you know, they let the families in at usually particular times, like a visiting time. And you'd be surprised, when, and you'll see this, when you go into the IC unit, and there's families that, you know, surge in, you know, for their, like, 8 o'clock time you go into the IC unit, and there'll be, like, 10 families in 10 rooms, and there'll be a couple rooms completely empty. Someone in there dying, nobody to visit them. I would go in and pray with them. But I had the opportunity of being close with people as they died, as they were dying, and with families who lost their loved ones. And I'm telling you, this, when I was 20, I was 25 years old. I had never really thought about death. I never thought I would die. You know, when you're 25 years old, <laughs> you know, it's like a long line ahead of you. This is part of this getting into the expectation of what it's like. And I realized what it meant, the, the power of death. Death is powerful. And later, in more recent years, my own father passed away. The realization that he's gone. It's very, very powerful in your life. And when I remember, I remember one of the things, I, I, I have a stack in my files of, of dozens of sermons I preached at funerals. Because I always wrote a fresh message forever. I thought was, they, they deserved that, of course. 
but I had certain things I used to always say. And one of them was this, because it, to me it summarized the gospel. I used to always say at some point in the funeral that the crisis of death has been overturned by the victory of Christ. And it's one of the great hopes of the church that, that we, we already are anticipating as we, our loved ones die, our friends die, and we, and of course, now I've had so many people, my, you know, my roommate in college, who was my age, passed away, and I've had so many deaths of people close to me now, as well as our parents are at that stage as well. But the point is, you realize the power of what it means that Jesus Christ says to us, I have overcome death. It's one of the great truths of the return of Christ. Secondly, he comes back to judge the world. Now, we are, we are born into this fellowship of the rebellion. We have joined in that group that, that says, you know, not, you know, your will but mine be done. And that's what, what it means to be human. Part of the human experience is to be in rebellion against God. I mean, that's why Augustine said we are, we are sinners by birth and by choice. We're born into sin. We also, we also have affirmed that in our lives in many ways. So in many ways, we have... We have chosen to identify ourselves with this very rebellion against God that Thessalonians is talking about, that Christ is going to come back and put an end to. We're, we understand that rebellion. We, one of the things that Christians have to always remember, what it's like to be rebellious against God, what it means to be a part of the rebellion and not lose your heart for a lost world. And I always, I, I, I mentioned a couple years ago as well, but I, I like to use the image of when you go into a mall and you see, you know, you walk into a mall and you see the big sign there that says, um, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out where to go in the mall, where do you want to do shopping, whatever. And there's usually a big, like, schemata there that shows you the picture of the mall. Well, it doesn't really help you to have a picture of the mall that's this big unless you know where you are at that moment. So there's usually a little, a little arrow there, right, that says, you are here. Have you ever seen that? Isn't that a great idea? You know, you need to be oriented, okay, where you are. You are here. Okay, now I, can, I know where I am. In some ways, when you read the Bible, and you, when you read about Adam's rebellion in the garden, for example, you should never read that any more than you look at the crucifixion of Christ and say that is, that something happened back then to somebody. That's, that's what the Pelagians believed. We're not Pelagian. We're not even semi-Pelagian. Let's hear an amen about that, by the way, because we're often accused regularly of being Pelagian. We are not Pelagian. We don't believe that every person's an Adam. We believe that something happened that when Adam sinned, we are in Adam. We are joining him in the rebellion. We were in his loins, as it were. And so all through his rebellion, uh, we are part of that, and then we join it in our own lives. When Christ comes, you put your faith in Christ, and you trust in Christ, the sign changes. When Christ is there in the, in the, in the wilderness, resisting the temptation of the devil, there's now a new little sign, you are here. When Christ is there, extending the rule and reign of God into a situation of hopelessness and, and, and separation and brokenness, you are, you are here. When Christ dies upon the cross, bearing the sins of the world, you are in Christ, you are here. When Christ is resurrect, resurrected, you are there. We are with him in heavenly realms. Ephesians tells us. So there's this new identification where everywhere the first Adam blew it, the second Adam gets it right. And we're now part of this fellowship of, you know, of the obedience. 
That's what we're part of. This is what is Paul, these are the two ways that Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He comes back to commend and to vindicate the saints and to say, you are in Christ. It's probably the most important phrase in the New Testament describing our new status. We are those in Christ. And when Christ in the garden said, not my will, but thine be done, that's the new motto of the fellowship of obedience. We're those who do God's will, those who walk in God's ways. We're on this narrow path, and we're part of this amazing work. And twice in this text, uh, Paul uses language we're uncomfortable with, but he says in here that as a result of this, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. That sounds pretty shocking. Verse 11, he says again, that our God may count you worthy of his calling. He's not talking about an earned worthiness, right? We know that. He's talking about what it means to be part, be in Christ. In, God in Christ has made us worthy. And isn't it good to know that right now, God says to you, where you are right now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ. This is part of the good news of, of the gospel. Because Christ has taken our judgment upon us. And finally, he, he returns to vindicate the faith of the church. Now, we live in a, a broken world. And we actually, now Paul gives us the vision to see that this road ends in Christ returning to a broken world. That means when Christ comes back, he is going to set things right. Now, this is where Christians have always gotten themselves in difficulty. And we have to kind of remind ourselves, this text, I think, is almost inconvertible that what we had to interpret what this passage means for us as Christians. On the one hand, it's wrong to live in what we call an over-realized eschatology, where we say, you know what, we are going to usher the kingdom of God into the earth, and when Christ comes back, it's going to be a seamless, glorious, beautiful thing. No, it's not. The world is broken, the world is in rebellion, and there's a lot of things in the world that will not be right until Christ comes back. And so there's some things in the world we say, you know, that's why Jesus has to come back, to set that right. Now, you know, so we, don't, we have to avoid a triumphalism, right? That we're overly triumphalistic, that we're going to make the, everything right in the world. But on the other hand, it is wrong to recognize the fact that he comes back to greet his church, the embodied presence of God in the world. And so the point is we don't want to also have a kind of passive kind of idea of escapism where we don't say, well, we can do nothing in this world. We can't make any changes, and therefore we're just going to uh, you know, wait till Jesus comes back. Let's go get on Estes Chapel roof and wait. No, let's don't get, first of all, it'd be very difficult to get on this roof and wait. <laughs> The, uh, maybe the cafeteria, but we're not even going to get on the cafeteria roof. We're not going to get on any roofs around here. <laughs> and the reason is because we have work, we have redemptive work to do. We have to roll up our sleeves and get down into the brokenness of this world and set things right. To, to quote Sandy Richter, I love her description of the church. The church is the outpost, uh, uh, the outpost of the new creation in Adam's world. That's what we are. We're outposts of the new creation. So everything in the new creation should already be embodied by the people of God in the church. We should embody reconciliation. We should be embodying hope. We should embody in forgiveness. We should be embodying grace. Everything that the, ch the church should be, we should be. 
We're called to be that and live that in the world. And we're called to penetrate into society and say, this is what happens when God's rule and reign is, is extended into this world. And there's many, many ways we can do that, even uh, with, with a wide range of groups. We can collectively gather together to, to resist evil in this world. And it's, it's a good thing to resist evil in this world. And we, so we, we want to avoid either over-realized or under-realized eschatology. But we have to live in a walk through the world in a way that makes sense in the world and how we walk through it. And I believe that when, we, when Christ comes back, one of the great things about the Revelation is it also tells a story. When he looks and he sees his people, he's not coming back to receive American Christians. I mean, he is coming back to receive American Christians. I shouldn't say that. Only American Christians. He's going to come back and receive Christians from Cuba and North Korea and Vietnam and China and Libya and India and Tunisia and Afghanistan and Cambodia and Iraq and Iran and Sudan, Nigeria, Kenya, Uruguay, Bolivia, Brazil. Shall I keep on going? I mean, God has his people all over the world. And amazingly, when, when John has his vision, Revelation 7, 9, of men and women from every tribe and tongue and language and people, he sees us in our particularity. It isn't like the eschaton washes it all away. He doesn't see generic Christians. He sees us in our identities, our particularities, because that also is honored by God. He sees, he hears languages. He hears God being praised in English and Spanish. Today we heard it in Korean, didn't we? German and Mandarin and Farsi and Kurdish and Swahili, and Afrikaans, and Lao, and Dari, and Hausa, and Arabic. All of these languages and many more will be offered to the Lord as, his, as a great, great celebration of his grace. And so even now the church anticipates this as we live in reconciliation and grace and power and peace. And the church will be the place where we manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit that the church embodies in the present, even as we wait for Christ's return, when he will finally come and set things right. Now, our little nephew, David, he eventually did go down to the garden months later, and he was able to harvest his pumpkin. And it was much bigger and more glorious than even he had imagined. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to remember your second advent. Lord, as we live in this waiting time, help us to know how to wait, to actively wait in an engaged waiting a working waiting, but also a restful waiting that know, that keeps our eye upon you. Help us to live in our world in this way. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.